0: Welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Nathan Thompson, who's an Assistant Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. And today we're going to talk about corn and soybean basis trends in the Eastern Corn Belt. And that's a topic that, uh, Nathan, you have looked at quite extensively. in fact, you know, let's talk just a little bit about what BASIS is for our listeners, and then we'll talk more about some of the research that you've done and, and the tool that you've uh, built that's available on the Center for Commercial Agriculture's website.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jim. So just to kind of, most people listening to this are probably familiar with the concept of BASIS, but just to, to make sure we're all operating on kind of the same definition here, so Basis is the difference between kind of the local cash price and the futures price. And so we all know that we can look on our phone or our computer and see what corn is trading for uh, in Chicago. And that price is different than uh, the price you would get bid if you called up your local elevator. And so that difference, right, the cash price at your local market minus the futures price is what we refer to as basis. Um, And so basis is a, a, a value that we study and kind of track uh, as it relates to kind of some marketing decisions. And, and as we think about basis as kind of this difference between local cash uh, price and futures price, we can think about that as an equation with some simple algebra. We can uh, uh, rearrange that and think about, right, the local cash price or the, the cash price that we ultimately are going to receive uh, for grain as a function of, of two components the futures component and then obviously the basis component. And so when we kind of divide that, that cash price into those two pieces, futures and basis, we can uh, open up a lot of risk management opportunities as far as different strategies for how we manage those pieces, uh, the futures piece and the basis.
0: And, you know, Nathan, I think one of the critical variables here is the fact that basis is not constant. Right. And that is why we really want to worry about it. If basis was constant, if it never changed, we really wouldn't worry about it very much. But the fact that it, it does vary, it does have some seasonal patterns is what creates some opportunities to actually improve our, our profits, improve our uh, price that we received, the net uh, return for our corn or soybeans. So, so managing basis risk can be uh, a way to improve profitability. And it's one that um, it's a really a marketing tool that a lot of people maybe don't pay as much attention to as they ought to. And, and uh, we're in an environment where margins are tight uh, if you can pick up five or ten or even fifteen cents a bushel, uh, that's enough to make a big difference on corn or soybeans. So, absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about how you might go about uh, using basis uh, to forecast. Uh, how would you how would you forecast basis without a model, or what kind of a model do you use?
1: Yeah, great question. So. Um, like you mentioned, right? Basis is not constant year round. And so if we're going to use it uh, as it relates to making some sort of marketing decision, uh, we need to be able to predict, forecast, kind of build an expectation of what we think it's going to be at different points uh, throughout the year. Uh, And so, you know, there's a lot of academic research in this, this area of forecasting basis and some folks use uh, some pretty fancy econometric models uh, to, to uh, come up with those forecasts. But there's a long history of uh, doing some more simple moving average type forecasts. And the research has shown that those those models using just the historical data, right, looking at what the average at a particular location has been over the last three to five years provides us a really Uh, pretty accurate forecasts, uh, a lot of times even more accurate than these fancier econometric models. And so really what we need to build our forecast is just some historical um, basis data for the particular region or location that we're interested in forecasting at. So what we would need is, say, three to five years of data uh, for a particular location, and then we could just average over that, so a three to five year historical average, And that would kind of give us uh, a pretty good estimate of the seasonal pattern throughout the year of what we think basis is going to be. So if we're trying to forecast basis at harvest, we would need three to five years of harvest time basis. If we're looking at like a storage decision and we wanted uh, to look at what basis was going to be later on in the year, we would need three to five years of historical data for basis, say, in April.
0: And I guess maybe to back up a little bit, this is really a topic that you spent quite a bit of time on. In fact, you worked on this really closely for a long period of time with one of your graduate students where you actually tested to try and identify what the best uh, tool was, the best moving average to forecast basis. And you might share a little bit about how you did that and, and what the results were.
1: Yeah, so we uh, used some of the data that came out of the tool that we're going to talk about here in a second to look pretty in depth. Like I said, you mentioned I had a a grad student that was interested in some uh, basis forecasting things, and so we 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 took a pretty deep dive into some of that data, looking at basically the question that we asked was, you know, what within the 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 framework of these moving average forecasts so these kind of simple very pragmatic ways of forecasting what what is the the best forecast for corn versus soybeans and then we also looked at what is the best forecast kind of across time and so like at different points throughout the, the marketing year were there different forecasts that perform better than, than other parts of the year and uh, <clears throat> kind of the short version the summarized version of that research you know we found that for corn, Using, you know, a three to five year moving average was a pretty good forecast from harvest through kind of the, the late spring. So say about April. Uh, after that, the, the accuracy of these, those forecasts deteriorated pretty quickly. So the, the accuracy uh, really started to evaporate and, and the air of those predictions went up pretty sharply into the summer months. And, and that's not surprising, right? Um, what's happening that time of year, we have kind of a lot of uncertainty surrounding new crop, uh, the acres, we have a lot of uncertainty about the, the weather associated with that new crop. And so basis can typically go one way or the other, right? We either have strong basis associated with whatever planning issues or, or weather issues, or we have really weak basis because it looks like we're going to have a great crop next year. And so that that old crop basis is affected by kind of what's going on in that new crop market for soybeans. Uh, it's, it's a very similar story, except the the length of those averages that that produce the most accurate forecasts tend to be shorter. So say for soybeans, looking at one to two year moving averages, um, again, from harvest through about that same April timeframe. And then after that same story where, uh, the accuracy of of any forecast really gets a lot less uh, accurate, as we move into those summer months uh, for the same reasons that I mentioned before. All
0: right, so then you have you took a data set that covered um, really four states, Indiana, Illinois, uh, Michigan, and Ohio. So you really kind of covered the Eastern Corn Belt uh, for corn and soybeans, and you had data from a wide variety of elevators. In fact, I think you had all the cash price data, the DTN reports in your data bank, right? Right. And you used that to ultimately build a crop basis forecasting tool. So describe the tool to us a little bit.
1: Yeah, so the tool is uh, based on, as you mentioned, uh, DTN data across uh, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and Michigan. And so we have the historical basis data going back to the 2005, excuse me, 2004-2005 crop year Uh, So quite a bit of historical data at this point that we can use to kind of uh, look at at different patterns in in different years, uh, different types of years, so to speak. And so uh, the the data comes from these individual grain buyers uh, across that region. Uh, the the way that we present the information is is not for individual locations, but instead we aggregate up to a crop reporting district level. So this is kind of what we're reporting in the tool is a regional average basis. So we're looking really at these kind of broad trends and what basis is doing within a particular region. Um, we'll talk about the, the details of kind of what the output might look like from the tool. but. For ease of use, uh, we allow you to kind of select a county that you're in, and then we automatically kind of back you into that crop reporting district. So just in case somebody doesn't know the crop reporting district that they're interested in, they can just select a particular county and you're automatically aggregated back. The data is updated uh, every week, so this isn't kind of a, a static thing, but is is, is very much dynamic, um, and so... The way it works is we're reporting uh, both the historical data that you can go in and and look at, again, various averages uh, of various years, as well as kind of the contemporaneous or the the current year, current marketing years data. So you can look at what current basis levels are doing relative to those uh, historical averages. And so like you mentioned, uh, again, the the data is based on DTN data. I think in total across the four states, we've got like 2000 locations that make up these regional averages.
0: Yeah, and so a little bit of perspective there, those crop reporting districts. So in Indiana, for example, I think that gives us nine different crop reporting districts. So nine different estimates of what BASIS is currently doing. And ineffectively, we can use that to generate a nine different forecast. Same thing in Illinois. I think Illinois, you know, is We've got Eastern Illinois, Southwest Illinois, Central Illinois, you know, you name it. So as you move around the state, you can see how those differences, uh, different really supply demand patterns really start to show up. And there are some pretty big differences in those regional basis patterns as you, as you look at it. So tell us a little bit about the tool. The tool is available on the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website. And it's you know, we always keep a link on the homepage. So if you just go to... Uh, purdue.edu slash commercial ag, you'll find a link that'll take you to the crop basis tool. But you know, describe that to us a little bit what it what it looks like.
1: Yeah. So once you you go to the website, you click on the the um the 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 Center for Commercial Ag crop basis tool uh, link it'll take you to what is what is the tool which is really just all housed on kind of one page, right? So the, the goal here is for this to be um, pretty user-friendly, uh, not a lot of uh, headache to, to kind of get what you're looking for. And so it's, it's all contained on one page, pr- pretty simple to use, I hope. Uh, and so really what you have is you have some drop down menus kind of across the top, and then below that, uh, there is a chart that's gonna chart the data that you're interested in. And so across the top, the, the choices that you have, again, are, are state. So like we mentioned, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Depending on the state you select, you then select the county that you're interested in. Again, that's gonna automatically uh, aggregate you back to the the relevant crop reporting district. Then you pick the crop that you're interested in. So we have data for corn and soybeans in there. You select the uh, uh, futures contract that you're interested in. By default, we're looking at uh, a nearby basis. So looking at basis for um, the the closest, current futures contract kind of constantly rolling to the next nearby futures contract, or looking at it on on a deferred basis, selecting uh, a particular futures contract to look at uh, across the entire uh, time period. And then lastly, you would select the historical data that you're interested in. So, like I said, we've got uh, data going back to 2004, 2005, uh, and you can select uh, uh, one individual year that you're interested in kind of doing a, a case study on, or you can select several years and the tools will the tool will automatically uh, average across those years for, so for example we default to the most recent 3 years so right now for the 1920 crop year we're um, we're automatically defaulting to looking at the last 3 years so that would be 1617 17, 18 and 1819 and so when you make those selections there's a submit button you would click submit the chart is going to automatically update to the information that you're interested in And again, um, you're going to see basically two lines. So there's a blue line, and and this is all labeled in the legend, so you can kind of uh, follow along uh, when you're looking at it for yourself. But there's a blue line, which represents the historical data that you selected, so some sort of average of uh, a basis for the region you selected. And then there's going to be a black line, and the black line is the current year's um, uh, basis level. So again, you're evaluating kind of, uh, the current year relative to whatever information, historical information you selected to, to look at.
0: So, you know, when you think about why do you want to look at different years and why do you have that opportunity, you know, I, I think about the fact that sometimes you want to think about, is this year like some previous year in the past? And, and maybe I want to go back and look at it. And the, the easy one that I like to think about is, well, what if, what if we happen to have a major drought? in Indiana and the eastern Corn Belt, you'd probably want to go back and look and see what happened in 2012, the last time we had a really major drought. Um, Alternatively, you know, in Indiana, we had a a pretty severe uh, corn production problem in 2015. A lot of Indiana was very wet, small corn production. We had an unusual basis pattern that year. If you see a repeat of that, you see something like that, you go back and look and see, well, what did basis do in that particular year? and then use that as a guide to uh, forecasting what might happen in the future. So the tool has that kind of flexibility, which is really nice. That's a pretty handy thing to do. Most of the time, you're probably just going to fall back and look at that three-year average uh, in the case of corn, or maybe in the case of soybeans, a two-year average. But there's going to be times when you want to do something a little bit different. So the other thing you can do is not look at nearby basis, but look at deferred basis and the tool creates that opportunity as well. Uh, Go ahead and describe how that works to us.
1: Yeah. So we, this was something that we were um, pretty, I don't know, adamant or excited about in terms of of a a key feature of the tool. So one of the the things that we talk about when we go around and do some educational programs around this is storage returns, storage hedging. Uh, And so being able to look at uh, basis or a deferred futures contract makes uh, that evaluating that sort of decision much easier uh, relative to looking at uh, the nearby basis. And so we we really wanted to have the the accessibility to be able to look at that pretty easily. And so again, the way the nearby basis works is you're looking at uh, the current cash price minus the futures price for the most nearby uh, futures contract. For the deferred contract instead of having that constantly rolling to the to the most uh, current futures contract we select a a single uh, more distant futures contract and we look at the cash price today minus that futures price um, today for that more distant contract and so for example if we're sitting at at harvest and we're interested in looking at deferred basis for uh, let's say the july corn contract we would be looking at the cash price at harvest minus the July corn futures, uh, price at harvest. And so basically what it does is you kind of embed, uh, that futures price spread into that calculation. Whereas with a nearby, uh, contract, you would have to account for that spread kind of outside of that calculation. And so again, what you get with that is this, uh, when you look at the charts on the website, you get this much more, um, uh, intuitive, smooth appreciation and basis across the storage season that you would expect to see based on theory, right? And so uh, it kind of makes it easy to say, all right, well, if we're going to implement a storage hedge, my gross returns to storage is just the difference between whatever that deferred basis was at harvest when I put that grain in the bin and whatever deferred basis uh, is then at the point whenever I uh, decide to sell that grain. So that, that difference, that smooth appreciation from whatever that deferred basis was at harvest to whatever it is, whenever we make that cash sale in the future uh, is our, our returns, gross returns to storage. And so, uh, so that, that's kind of how it works. It's, 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 maybe a little hard to uh, envision uh, on a, on a podcast, but if you look at the charts, hopefully that makes uh, some sense.
0: Yeah. And I think the way I like to think about it and the way I use it, when I teach class, I teach the introductory uh, commodity futures class here on campus um, you know, the way I look at that is to say it's, it provides an e- relatively easy way to evaluate storage returns. Um, it's it's not perfect. It's, it's, you know, we can do some other things in terms of playing with the spreads across futures contracts. So there are some other elements that can come into play later on. But it's a straightforward way to think about uh, possible storage returns and, and really makes that just a little simpler than, than it would be otherwise. So uh, based on your research, you've looked at this really pretty detailed and you've come up with some thumb rules about how to forecast both corn and soybean basis here in the Eastern corn belt. So share those with us.
1: Yeah. So like we talked about before uh, this, this um, uh, research on these, these thumb rules for the the forecasting these moving averages, what are the lengths should be. So we developed a tool and it was kind of uh, you know, if we're gonna have this tool out there and have you be able to select these different lengths of time to average across, we should probably have some sort of recommendation or thumb roll, and so this this was kind of the impetus for the research that we talked about earlier with, with a former grad student. And so again, in doing that, the, the really boiled down version of, of what we kind of recommend if you're using the tool and, and wanting to uh, use what we think is, is the quote unquote optimal uh, forecast for corn, Uh, we typically try to look at three to five year moving averages again from harvest until April after that point in the marketing year uh, it becomes a lot more difficult uh, to forecast basis the the accuracy of that three to five year forecast our three to five year moving averages is is going to be somewhat questionable for soybeans uh, I tend to look at a two-year moving average again from harvest until April after that point it becomes uh, quite difficult and again if you couple that that recommendation with our, uh, our the research that we've done with a student on, on returns to storage, I, I typically don't recommend needing to forecast basis much beyond that because if you're storing grain past, say, May or June, uh, you're taking on a lot of risk uh, that I think is probably unnecessary. And so, you know, how you forecast basis beyond that, I, I don't have great recommendations just because it's kind of beyond the scope of what we generally recommend.
0: Yeah, and I think really what it boils down to is there's enough variability in that forecast for those time frames. That it becomes difficult to forecast basis. And you just need to recognize that if you're going to store into that time frame, it's a risky move. Um, without getting into all the details, you and I have done some workshops here in the state uh, and around the country talking about uh, how to forecast basis and improve marketing returns. And one of the things we talk about is having a, a marketing strategy that's really composed of a portfolio of marketing decisions. And you might choose to retain storage on a portion of your crop into the summer period. But if you do so, recognize that it's relatively risky and you probably don't want to do that with a large portion of your crop is is kind of our recommendation.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it it's, it's more so uh, we don't have generalized recommendations for that. It's more case-to-case, year-to-year. So you could think about last year as a great example where uh, basis kind of uh, went through the roof uh, late in the summer uh, because of kind of planting conditions and the, and the lack of a crop. And so, you know, if you were able to read that situation and, and know going in that you were going to have a place to sell corn and you were going to be able to sell it for, for a better price... That, I, I have no issue with that, but it's just we don't have generalized recommendations around those things because, again, it can go either one way or the other. So if you have a place that you know is going to need it um, or if you, if you read the, the signals in a given year and you know that there's going to be some opportunities, then certainly having that as part of a portfolio makes sense.
0: All right. Let's talk a little bit about current year basis because this has been a very unusual year. Um uh, to say the least, right? I guess that under that understates it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but we've seen some big swings in basis, and that shows up on the tool. And maybe we can explain what's going on. And maybe thinking a little bit about going back to the definition of basis, because basis really reflects what's taken place in the local market relative to supply and demand in that local market relative to the futures market, and so. Part of what's happened this year with respect to the shock to the market of COVID-19 has been reflected in futures prices, but it's also had differential impacts on cash prices as you move around the country. And you can pick up some of that looking at the basis tools. So talk to us a little bit about what was going on in corn basis for starters, Nathan.
1: Yeah, so let's let's start and let's just we have the the tool set up to default to west central indiana which is where we're at here in Tippecanoe county so let, let's start with that and then we'll kind of broaden uh beyond that for some additional thoughts but generally in addition to west central indiana across the, the eastern corn belt we started off 2019 2020 so in the you know the, the harvest of, of uh fall of 19 with pretty strong basis levels across the board and again kind of segueing from the point that we just made a minute ago. That was uh, had a lot to do with uh, the the planting issues that we had in the spring of nineteen with with the wet spring that we had. So we had uh, a lot less uh, corn and soybeans than than maybe we anticipated going into the fall. Uh, excuse me, into the planting season of twenty nineteen, and so basis levels were were stronger than um, than what we would see typically, and that kind of uh, uh, pattern persisted uh, through. Well, up till about March when we saw COVID hit. And so we stayed pretty well above that three-year average for quite a while. Uh, about the second, third week of March, uh, when uh, things really just started going crazy as, as it relates to uh, the COVID situation, we saw corn basis in, in West Central Indiana drop about 30 cents in four weeks, which is a huge, a huge decline. If you go on the, the, the website and look at the chart, it's a pretty um, pretty large decline pretty quickly. And a lot of that, uh, I think uh, there's there several reasons, but a lot of that in particular as it relates to corn was, was a lack of ethanol demand as it relates to gasoline and ethanol. And Joe, I know that you've done some work looking at some charts. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about kind of what happened in that market and how that translated uh, into this corn basis information. Yeah.
0: So I think the first thing to think about is how important ethanol demand is to corn usage in the Eastern Corn Belt, especially Indiana. And there's some variability from year to year, but between 40 and 50% of the corn produced in Indiana winds up going to an ethanol plant. So that's, that's a huge source of demand. And when COVID-19 hit, uh, combined with weakness in some, some ongoing weakness that really predated COVID-19 and the oil market, that made ethanol much less valuable and really drove down the margins for ethanol production. And so, you know, if you go back and look at the weekly changes in ethanol production, uh, I went back and looked at that. And, and if you compare ethanol production on a week-to-week basis like relative to the first full week of January, You know, uh, during January and the first part of February, uh, we were running slightly below that early January time frame. I think ethanol production on a weekly basis was running about 4 to maybe 6% below what it was that first full week of January. When COVID-19 started to hit, when the coronavirus started really impacting not only the U.S., but really worldwide markets, we saw ethanol production collapse. Um, And by middle to late April, uh, we were running ethanol production at literally one half of what it was in early January. And so when that happened in a state like Indiana and the Eastern Corn Belt especially, um, not only did corn futures prices come down, but we had a differential impact on local markets in here in, in, in a good bit of Indiana. So we saw futures prices come down, but we saw cash fall even farther than what futures were falling. And so that created this very weak basis situation, which you were just describing when we saw basis collapse. But the important thing to think about is, it mattered where you were. Yeah. The, the impact was not uniform around the country. And the reason was, it depended on what the primary source of demand was in that local area. If you were in an area that was dominated by demand for ethanol, basis collapsed even harder than it did elsewhere if you were an area that was more oriented towards the export channels, uh, you still saw maybe some weakness in basis, but uh, because the ethanol had had an influence throughout the corn market, but uh, basis didn't drop nearly as hard as it did in the areas where ethanol was really the primary source of demand. So that made a big difference. And then I guess the good news for corn farmers is in recent weeks, um, ethanol production has started to recover. If you look at... uh, The last couple of weeks of June, for example, we're still running below where we were in early January, but we're up uh, between 15 and 20 percent below uh, that early January production level, as opposed to the 50 percent reductions we were looking at back in April. So the good news is ethanol demand has been recovering, but it's still not back to where it was at the beginning of the year. So, thinking about that, hit the basis. You might kind of describe the changes as you as you move around the, the state a little bit, and maybe around the corn belt a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, this was um, the the one of the, the valuable uh, things about having the tool set up with with these regional uh, averages. And so, we're not just looking at say basis for the entire state of Indiana, but we have <clears throat> excuse me by crop reporting district. We can look at this and, and look at what's going on in these kind of more localized markets. And so, kind of like you mentioned, that that impact of, uh, we'll just call it ethanol, but COVID-19 and all the implications that, that came from that, uh, as you talked about with ethanol, that hit to corn basis uh, was felt differently in, in different places. And so, we, we've kind of looked around, and again, I'd encourage you to go on the tool and, and kind of click around for yourself to see this, but really, you kind of get this uh, story north to south, right, throughout the, well, throughout mainly... Um, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. And so, you know, the further south that you go, that that hit to corn basis from from the COVID-19 situation is kind of more muted. And I think that we talked about earlier probably has a lot to do with source of demand. And so as the further you move south, right, the river becomes more of a, a prominent part of, of that market. And so those markets were able to continue to um, maybe not as normal, but at least more normal than, than what we saw with ethanol. And so the, the, the local demand, uh, kind of the further south that you went was uh, not as disrupted as it was uh, in other parts of uh, those three states where say, ethanol might, was, might be a, a more prominent part of the demand um, makeup. And so uh, when, when we had this situation with uh, ethanol margins and, and ethanol production declining pretty rapidly, those further north or those markets that, that relied more heavily on that, those ethanol markets um, took, took a, quite, a, quite a bit more of a hit uh, from the basis side of things.
0: Yeah, and it was really obvious when I took a look at some of the numbers in, in uh, Illinois. So, for example, when I looked at uh, Champaign County, which I think in, um, in our uh, uh, crop reporting district, that winds up being uh, eastern Illinois, the basis pattern looked a lot like it did in Indiana because that part of Illinois is still pretty dependent on ethanol demand. Then when you move over and get closer to the Mississippi river, I looked at Southwest Illinois, uh, the pattern looked different, right? And we did see a drop off. I'm not saying there wasn't a drop off in in basis when uh, COVID-19 hit and and people became concerned about the lack of demand from ethanol. But when you looked at a market that was more heavily dependent on the export channel, more heavily dependent on on the river markets uh, moving, moving that, Uh, corn overseas, Um, basis dropped, but it still stayed above the three-year average. And that was not the case in much of Indiana when we saw, uh, particularly the region's hardest hit, we actually saw basis drop below the three-year average. Whereas, you know, you get some of those river markets that actually weakened from what it had been earlier, but remained above the three-year average. So I guess the the point we're trying to make is when you think about basis, it matters where you're at, and you need to know basis in your local region. You need to become familiar with it, and intuitively, you need a little better knowledge about what what are the drivers behind basis in your local community. But the basis numbers will help you uh, maybe understand that a little little more completely. Let's uh, talk a little bit about. Um, basis going forward. This is supposed to be a little bit about basis forecasting. Well, let's see if we can do a little basis forecasting, Nathan.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's think uh, a little bit about the 2020, 2021 uh, marketing year. And so um, the, 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 the way that I typically do this is as we're looking forward, we kind of have to do some, some kind of back of the envelope calculations. And I like to compare those with, with uh, new crop basis bids. So we have, uh, the Andersons at Delphi, I went and pulled what their, uh, new crop corn, um, basis bid is, which is 30 under, uh, the December 20 futures. And so when we compare that with, uh, the forthcoming three-year average, so including last year into that three-year average, um, the our our tool would forecast that basis in which I what I think is North Central Indiana technically Delphi falls into the North Central Crop Reporting District. Um, we we see that uh, that's that's quite a bit weaker than what the tool would say. So uh, the tool the most recent three years would say uh, basis would be about nine under the futures. But uh, if you kind of think about what's going on in the three years, and again, using some some kind of interpretation here, last year, we already talked about, we had extremely strong basis in the fall as a result of of, uh, production issues last year. And so, you know, you kind of have to use a little bit of intuition when when we think about these things. And so my intuition, when you think about uh, kind of using the average, thinking about where last year falls, last year being kind of somewhat exceptional, not typical. Uh, I would say, all right, well, if I ignore last year and I take the average of the previous three years, which would just be 16, 17, 17, 18, and 18, 19, the same three years that we were looking at for, for this year, that that 30 under basis bid uh, for uh, new crop that, that the Andersons at Delphi has is nearly identical to the 29 under that I would get from the tool. Um, and so, basically, this, this idea of using these, these new crop bids as a little bit of a, a gauge for comparing against what the tool is going to tell us. I would say that we're pretty much on track to be about where we would expect to be on an average uh, year in terms of corn basis going in, into the fall.
0: So that brings up an interesting point. You know, if you think about how um, commercial firms are making their new crop bids, Truthfully, they're looking at this exact same kind of data, right? They're looking at historical patterns and, you know, they don't have magic wands that tell them what the basis is going to be in November or, uh, uh, you know, in throughout the marketing year. So they have you to know, use I, some, some data like I don't like know. This.
1: Maybe maybe they do have a magic wand. But what I thought was really interesting is when we, when we put the tool together, this is something that we did pretty quickly. We start comparing to what some of these, um, um, uh, forward kind of contract bids were and, and it is very surprising to see how closely they tend to line up with our averages and so it's hard to it's hard to believe otherwise that they aren't using some sort of, of moving average uh, probably adjusted for obviously current information but um, but yeah it, it's 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 uh it's pretty powerful to be able to see that similarity and then think about how we could then leverage that information to improve uh, some marketing decisions
0: So thinking about marketing decisions, then, you know, as you think about what's happened in the corn market here recently, of course, we've seen the big collapse in corn futures prices that took place, you know, you go back to February, uh, we had um, D's 20 corn trading in the ballpark of $4. And now we've collapsed it as low as uh, didn't quite get all the way to 320, but it got close. We've seen a rally here these last couple of weeks, largely based on weather concerns. you know, prices in the, in the three fifties, um, you know, what's your perspective?
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, obviously, uh, we've seen this pretty big decline, but again, recent kind of recent, uh, we'll call them rallies. They're small rallies on, on weather and and even smaller planted acres. Um, likely you're going to give us some, some of our best opportunities, uh, if if history is any indication, right? So we, we've also done some work looking at kind of seasonality and futures, And so, uh, we typically see, uh, new crop futures hit their peaks. And again, the, the peak here is going to be a little bit different given the, the drop that we saw from COVID, but we see some of our best opportunities, uh, come somewhere this time of year, June, July, again, associated with these, uh, weather, weather type rallies. And so, um, if you, if you, uh, assume that, you know, the COVID situation remains stable and some of that other stuff is going to remain stable. Uh, I would anticipate that futures are probably not going to continue going up. They're going to continue uh, or they're they're likely going to revert towards a a seasonal low closer to harvest. And so I would argue that uh, whether it's old crop or even thinking new crop, if you haven't uh, got rid of old crop or um, you're looking to make uh, some moves on some new crop. There, these are probably some times to be thinking about making some decisions and pulling the trigger on some portion uh, of, of, of new crop and also thinking seriously about whatever you have left over in terms of old crop, being able to make some decisions on that as well. Um, because, yeah, frankly, the history tells us that this is probably going to be, in the current market, one of the, the best uh, opportunities that you're, you're going to have uh, for, for a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, without spending a lot of time on it, you've, you've spent a fair amount of time looking at seasonality of futures uh, prices. And typically in that, uh, well, I guess the easy way to explain it is to say that in the time frame when you, people start to have some concerns about current crop production, we tend to see some rallies. In some years, that's a little earlier than now. Some years, it's more towards the late June. This year, it's kind of spilled over into this early July time frame. Um, but historically, that's created an opportunity to do some marketing. And it's not like you want to sell 100% of your crop at this point in no, time, but no. it's an opportunity to sell a portion of it. And uh, I think that's kind of kind of what the conclusion here is. Um, what about the soybean side?
1: Yeah, so soybeans are a little bit different case than in some of the discussion we've been having around corn. So if we think back to what's happened over the entire kind of 1920 marketing year, soybeans, Similar to corn, started out and, and stayed uh, strong in, from a basis perspective throughout the year. Again, going back to uh, the production issues we had in 2019. The difference here is we, we really didn't see a big um, impact on, on soybean basis levels from COVID-19. And so we can kind of speculate uh, about some of that. Again, we've talked about this this local uh, concept of basis and, and these these issues with uh, reductions in in ethanol uh, production, which decreased corn demand, soybean maybe just didn't have that local kind of uh, strong hit to demand in some places. And so we just really didn't see um, big dips or big kind of fall offs in in soybean basis uh, across all of the States that we cover. It it stayed relatively steady In recent weeks, right. We've seen more of maybe a, a little bit of a steady decline, but I, that doesn't surprise me, given the the strength that we've had in soybean basis throughout uh, the 2019-2020 uh, marketing year. Eventually, we're going to expect to see that at least start to revert towards more of a normal level. And so to see that start to happening in the last month or so is not not surprising to me at all.
0: Yeah, and I think the easy way to think about that is, unlike corn, um, the impact of coronavirus and the impact of changing trade patterns and and uh, uh, that combination has really been reflected in futures prices, fully reflected. And as a result, there was no big reason to see basis change. On the corn side, we saw some of that impact show up in corn futures prices, but because ethanol is such a, a differential uh, demand as you move around the corn belt, it had a bigger impact in some places than others, and that had to be reflected in basis. So there was no reason to see the basis uh, collapse in soybeans the same way it did in, in, um, in corn. So that creates a different situation. So thinking about uh, the fall, uh, what's, your, what's your perspective?
1: Yeah, so again, kind of comparing um, some, some new crop uh, basis bids for soybeans again from from the Andersons uh, Delphi. Um, I, their, their current uh, basis bid for new crop is thirty five under uh, November futures. Uh, if we look at the uh, most recent two years, so nineteen twenty and eighteen nineteen in the crop basis tool, that would give us um, harvest time soybean basis of about forty five cents under November futures. And so, uh, to me, it looks like that strength in soybean basis that we've seen throughout the current marketing year is likely going to persist at some level, probably not near as strong as it was in 1920, but at least, you know, based on a comparison of what the regional average is in the the tool and what current um, uh, new crop basis bids are uh, in the market you know, they're about 10 cents stronger. And so, uh, I would say basis, at least starting out the marketing year is probably going to be a little bit stronger than what we've seen in the past. Uh, well, what we've seen in the past from a long, long-term perspective, but somewhere, you know, not quite as strong as last year, uh, but not quite as weak as maybe uh, a little bit longer time frame. So say the last two, three, four years. So, so somewhere in the middle, uh, I guess is, is what my kind of, uh, uh, prediction is as of right now. So for example, if you were using the tool to make a forecast on harvest time soybean basis, I would recommend you know adjusting up a, a slight whatever five to 10, ten, cents based on what the tool is going to tell you uh, based on the information that I'm seeing coming out in these new crop bids. Yeah, and the
0: other implication I think Nathan, is that when you see a bid from uh, terminals that's uh, a little bit stronger than that average, the implication is apps uh, and other information that's probably a pretty good bid. So if you're thinking about uh, doing some pricing for fall, um, yeah. you know, locking that in on the cash market is probably a, a good strategy. That's, uh, a,
1: that's a great point. That's that's something that I highly recommend. You know, we, we go around and do these these workshops on, on commodity marketing and, and talk about the tool. And, and, you know, we talk about a variety of different strategies. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, we'll talk about some storage hedging. And there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with using futures. And, you know, that's not for me to decide whether that's the, the decision that they need to make or not. But the tool is not strictly for evaluating hedges, right? Like you can, just like you mentioned, this is a great way to use it is to think about, all right, this is what the, the uh, forward contract bid is for me to, to uh, lock up some, some sales of new crop. This is what the tool says it, it would think it would be on average. Uh, if that's a, if that's a stronger bid, that's a great, maybe a great opportunity to, uh, to, to make some sales that you were going to make anyway,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, if you were going to do some pricing, for example, this week, uh, the implication would be that that's a pretty competitive basis bid, and uh, locking it in on the cash market for fall delivery would be a reasonable strategy on some on some product that you want to move during that time frame. Uh, yeah, conversely, if the basis was a lot weaker than normal, uh, you'd want to do some additional investigation and think about well, why are why are their basis bids so weak? What's going on here? And you might choose. For example, if you're willing to use futures to place a hedge in futures and see if the basis actually strengthens a little bit and uh, later on. So yeah, that's a good, a good way to use the tool, at least one of the things that I like to do. So let's think again a little bit. Now we talked about corn. Let's think about uh, pricing opportunities on soybeans. We've seen a rally in those as well, uh, those soybean November soybean futures Dipped below 850 uh, in that late April and May timeframe, and then as we've gotten a little bit concerned here about production, they've rallied recently, and we're up uh, in the vicinity of nine dollars. Weaker than we were back in February, but significantly stronger than we were a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah. So to me, the the interpretation here, the the implications are are really very similar to what we talked about with corn uh, as it relates to the future side of things. And so whether you're thinking about <clears throat> old crop or new crop, uh, this kind of rally that we've seen from, from the lows that we hit because of the, the COVID situation. So these recent rallies would line up pretty well again with what history would tell us would be some some pretty good opportunities um, um, for, for locking in futures uh, this time of year, right? So again, obviously, the the high for this contract, so the high for November uh, twenty soybean, um, is not going to come in July, right? It, it came way earlier because of the huge decline that we saw associated with COVID. But as we think about where those futures are going moving forward, um, again history would tell us that seasonally we're going to see those those uh, futures prices decline. And, and again, there's a lot of things that can impact that, and that could be uh, wrong, but history would tell us we would see those revert more towards seasonal lows in the fall and so this this rally here in July would line up pretty well with when we would see some opportunities to potentially lock in soybean futures um, again for, for a portion of your crop uh, so yeah could, I think that's the key could be point. A good opportunity
0: yeah I think that's the key point Nathan getting back to our portfolio strategy this was, this looks like the time to execute that portion of your portfolio that you're going to allocate to uh, these summer sales. Uh, both looking at new crop and if you do have some remaining old crop, maybe this is the opportunity to move that. And, and recognizing that we are we're in that time frame, but it's a weather market, yeah. and uh, we don't know any more than than what the, uh, the people at NOAA tell us with respect to what's going to take place <laughs> on, in weather over the next few weeks. But um, History would suggest that this has been a, a reasonable time to, to start some, some pricing. So, thanks for joining us today, uh, Nathan. That really wraps up our discussion. Uh, to use the Center for Commercial Agriculture's Crop Basis Tool, go to our website, purdueedu commercialag, and you'll find a link to the tool on the center's homepage. Or you can just search for it uh, typing Purdue Commercial Ag Crop Basis Tool, and you should be able to find it pretty easily in your search engine that way. So I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleague, Nathan Thompson, and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minnard. Thanks for listening.